Pod is a ministry of Grace Church Greenwich. For more resources to help you get to know God better through his word, including bite-sized theology and answers to big questions, do check out www.greenwich.church. We hope you enjoy this episode. Hi, and welcome to Grace Pod, and we're c- continuing our Bible overview. Last time we were thinking about this extraordinary promise to David that he will always have a king on his throne. And now we're looking at his son, Solomon, who is the one sitting on the throne. And we're in 1 Kings chapter 8 and uh, looking at verse 27. And it's a great moment. This was actually fulfilled in our last study that his son, David's son, would build God a house, uh, a temple. And we're, we're at the point where the, the temple is being dedicated and Solomon is praying a big prayer, dedicating it to, to God. And we're going to see that in some ways... It wasn't Alexander Graham Bell who invented the telephone, but it was invented in this chapter, uh, in 1 Kings chapter 8. Uh, let's, before we get into this question of communication, let's deal with this, one of the big perennial problems of theology, which is how do we combine God's transcendence, God's otherness and far aboveness, with his imminence, God being close and down here. And this is a question that's right at the heart of the temple. If we were to ask the question, does God live in the temple or not? Yes, and and I think Solomon's very attuned to that parrot. Well, this question in the he begins his prayer, verse twenty-seven. But will God indeed dwell on the earth? And you can imagine all the builders they spent ages <laughs> kind of putting this temple up, and then Solomon goes, "Obviously, it was not really necessary, gentlemen. Uh, is God going to dwell on the earth?" And then he says, "Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you." how much less this house that I have built. And so he, he's, he's kind of relativizing or even possibly dismissing the temple. It, w- w- what was the point of it, Solomon, if, if God can't actually live in it? Um, and uh, he, he goes on and th- there's a bit of a tension because um, he says uh, in verse 29, uh, the, the place of which you have said, my name shall be there. And and we're a, a few verses after, I think it was 10 and 11, that literally God's glory cloud comes to live um, in the temple. So there is something about God literally, his glory lives there, his name lives there. Mm-hmm. And yet there's something about, but how could God really be contained within a temple? So maybe it's important to say yes and no. Um, let's you think about the no first. So why is it important to say God cannot be contained by this temple it's something that isaiah riffs on actually picking up from this verse i think isaiah 66 thus says the lord heaven is my throne the earth is my footstool <laughs> you know the earth is just where i rest my toes by the fire what is the house you would build for me what is the place of my rest all these things my hand has made so um isaiah needs to warn people don't think god can be shrunk to the size of your temple and i guess that's because the the gods of the nations all have temples so here is Zeus's temple here is marduk's temple here is oh here is yahweh's temple he's just like all the others and it's just a reminder god is not like all the others he made the heavens and the earth uh, he is everywhere he's and maybe we we need that if we think god can be shrunk to the size of this church or this service or this um it's one of the things paul picks up in when talking to the pagans in athens mm. um that god who made the earth and everything in it doesn't live in temples built by hands like don't don't shrink him down so in one important sense 
God doesn't live here. But as you say, what's the point of having built it? And God's glory is here. God's name is here. Like for for what purpose? In what way is God specially present here? Yeah. And there's this strange um, uh, idiom that he uses about eyes and ears. So he says, um, have regard to this prayer, verse 28, that your eyes may be open night and day towards this house. And then later on, that you may listen. So he says, have your eyes open in order that you can listen, which even children can tell you isn't good anatomy. Um, <laughs> but I think he's he's getting at two ideas. One is that he, he wants them to listen to the prayer. So that's why he talks about ears. But ears um don't focus in a particular direction or at least maybe dogs do you know they can or owls do they can uh, focus their hearing but he's saying have you know your this, eyes you know this is literally my phd subject is it was on spatial hearing exactly this but you know you're go, go on okay well <laughs> he says have the kind of focus that your eyes have but have it for your ears have your ears directed in this direction and i think yeah and on that analogy if you think of a busy room with lots of people clamoring and you're having a conversation with somebody and they don't make eye contact, that means they're not really listening to you. As in, you might need it to lip read, you might, but it's just a way of saying, you've got my attention. And it's very disconcerting talking to somebody who's not looking at you because it doesn't. So it's, it's, please pay attention. Please notice when we're trying to talk to you, Lord. Yeah, my, my wife's a primary teacher and she likes to say, show me you're listening. <laughs> um, yes, not to me, of course. <laughs> um, so yeah, he's he's saying it's important that we have this house because this is going to be the symbol of your commitment to listen to us and it's like your eyes are on this house and therefore if we pray in this way towards the house we can be um we can be confident of your focus your direct listening focus hmm. and then um solomon envisages a particular kind of conversation that he'll need to have with god and they'll need him in the future which is basically um, sorry, um, it's not exclusively that, but he, there's seven prayers that come after this. And I think five of them are when you hear, please forgive. And and the repeated ref- refrain is, and listen, when, when this terrible thing happens or when we're in a scrape or when we've got plagues, um, listen in heaven, your dwelling place. So there's the point. God actually lives in heaven. Um, and when you hear, forgive. And it's like, this this intercom, this telephone that we're going to really benefit from, most of the value of it is so that we can put things right when they go wrong and we can receive your forgiveness. And it's amazing that preemptively Solomon asked God to promise that he will listen. So I guess it's like when you, I mean, even a human analogy works with this. If you wrong somebody, another human being, and you realize that you've wronged them and you want reconciliation. Uh, you phone them or you text them or, you know, I'm, I'm sorry. And But there's that awful situation where you phone somebody and they won't pick up or you text someone and they don't text back. And you see that the WhatsApp message has got two blue ticks and it's been read, but there's no reply. And, and Solomon's sort of anticipating that and says, I know we're going to sin. And when we do, when we say, sorry, please take the call. And he, he asked for God in advance to commit to having the communication channel open to make reconciliation possible. Because you know, imagine if God said, I, w- I won't listen. Um, I'm going to turn a deaf ear to you. And there's just no way back then. So please give us the way back by continuing to be ready to hear us say sorry. 
And you, you said there were um, seven prayers, seven scenarios that he envisages. And um, we, we were looking in our group at how it's, uh, when you get a, uh, an intercom, you test the range of it. Actually, we used to have a baby monitor which advertised a two-kilometer range, which we wow. worked. Out, we worked out we could be in Limington, they could be on the Isle of Wight, and we'd still <laughs> hear it. But which isn't very safe, by the way. Um, but the the point is that at the beginning he's saying, like, Im- imagine things go wrong, and we pray verse thirty-one before your altar, so we're right up close. And this then, is like so close to the radio mast that you're being fried by the microwaves. Yeah. Uh, okay well i'm glad it still works you're, you're going to listen then then 33 what about if we pray in this house that's in the temple mm. and then 38 what if we are outside but we pray towards this house okay okay that's good verse 44 what if we pray towards this city so we're really testing the intercom now we're not even in the same city and then the worst thing happens at the end there's this uh anticipation of what if it's almost a divorce what if we get exiled and, and vomited out of the land, which was the mm. terrible uh, covenant curse that was envisaged if they really rebel against God. And it says, uh, even in exile, when you're praying towards their land, verse 48, will you listen? And the answer, of course, is yes, God will receive the call. Mm. And, and like you were saying, this is the, yeah, if, if you've upset one, someone, and they block your call that is the end of the relationship there's no there's no way back from that because you can't um you can't even put things right you can't even say sorry and so on and mm. and so this is envisaging what if we get to the sort of stage where you could just block the call and we're actually spat out and we're in exile what will you do then lord and the answer is he's always going to listen um, and, and I think our, our group last night was saying this is the ultimate comfort. You know, you can't go too far away. God, mm-hmm. God will have anyone back when they come back to him. However far we've strayed, uh, we could be eating pig swill in the far land mm-hmm. and the father's arms are still welcome, uh, welcoming us back. Shall I read it? Because it's such a beautiful, um, sober uh, paragraph. If they sin against you, for there's no one who doesn't sin and you're angry with them and give them to an enemy so that they're carried away captive to the land of their enemy far off or near yet if they turn their heart in the land to which they've been carried captive and repent and plead with you in the land of their captors saying we've sinned and acted perversely and wickedly if they repent with all their mind and with all their heart in the land of their enemies who carried them captive and pray to you towards their land which you gave to their fathers the city you've chosen, the house that I've built for your name, then hear in heaven your dwelling place, their prayer and their plea, and maintain their cause and forgive your people who have sinned against you and all their transgression they've committed against you and grant them compassion in the sight of those who carried them captive that they may have compassion on them for they are your people and your heritage which you brought out of Egypt from the midst of the iron furnace. Let your eyes be open to the plea of your servant and to the plea of your people, Israel." giving ear to them whenever they call to you. Um, I mean, it's very, it's actually very foresighted of Solomon because mm. as you read 1 and 2 Kings, this is exactly what will happen. And it, actually we can chart the stages from our previous study in Leviticus 26 where God warns of curses coming on them if they disobey him. And every curse is an opportunity to turn back, 
But if you don't turn back, you get to the next stage of curse. And lots of the things that God warned, um, famine and um, no rain and mildew and enemies invading and all these things. And the last one's the worst, the, the exile. And Solomon is like, suppose we get to the last one. And he kind of knows that. I mean, it's predicted in Deuteronomy that it will happen. But it's also predicted from human nature. He just, if they sin against you, there's no one who doesn't sin. So he, he's just realistic enough to know we might very much need this final, final uh, rescue. And he also knows that God is a, a rescuing, merciful God. And so I suppose that that gives him the confidence to anticipate this. Lord, if I if I if we go really, really wrong, and we're so far, much so that we're kicked out of your promised land, mm. please then. I kind, of, I kind of love the realism of that and the confidence in God's mercy in that scenario. Um, it, it raises one obvious question, which is, so the temple is now not so much a, um, a telephone box as a mobile booster with a very long range, and the range even extends to... Um, captivity in Babylon what about if the temple gets demolished so if you if if someone tears down the radio tower and smashes up the telephone exchange because Nebuchadnezzar is going to besiege Jerusalem and the temple be gone and you say well what hope is the prayer then you had a good answer to this well I love the um, situation Daniel finds himself in where he he's not just in Babylon but he's in Babylon after the destruction of the temple mm. and famously he gets put in a, a, a lion's den but what what did he do wrong answer he opened his windows three times a day and prayed towards Jerusalem so he's he's enacting what this prayer is envisaging you're, you're far away but he's in, instead of going to the intercom and then up into heaven he goes, well, the intercom isn't there, but I still trust. So he goes diagonally <laughs> up straight to heaven and he points his window towards Jerusalem and does as close as he can to what the prayer says. And um, th- there's a place um, a few chapters later, Daniel 9, um, verse mm. 21, where it's described that something happens at the time of the evening sacrifice. And you think, OK, that, that kind of you know they they give us a time marker on it but then you think what 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 evening sacrifice that there isn't even a temple let alone a sacrifice in the temple but it's a little reminder that daniel is working even in babylon on jerusalem time and he's um he's acting in his heart is somewhere else even as he works here and it's yeah it's a reminder that daniel is is even without the temple um he's still kind of uh, working on the basis that uh, Jerusalem is his home and the temple will work. Hmm. Now, what we're seeing here theologically is a bit different to our uh, standard answer of what the temple's about. So if if you were to say to a Christian, Jesus is a new temple, what does that mean? Often we think in terms of sacrifices for sin and they happened at the temple. And we saw that in our overview, didn't we, in Leviticus 16. Mm-hmm. The main idea of the tabernacle there was cleansing and forgiveness. Yeah. So, but it's quite interesting that when the the New Testament wants to talk about Jesus and atonement, it often goes to the tabernacle, the tent, rather than to the temple which replaced it. Um, and so that that is a big strand. Jesus is the true tabernacle. He's the true sacrifice. But the temple's adding something else theologically, which is this idea of the one through whom God hears your prayers for forgiveness. And Jesus that as well. So yes, Jesus is the sacrifice. Um, he's the 
the mercy seat, um, says Romans chapter 3 in the tabernacle. But he's also the the communication channel um, of the temple. And that's when when Jesus curses the fig tree and it spells the end of the earthly temple. And the disciples are quite freaked out by it. This is what he goes for. He says, you know, um, trust in God. And then he reassures them, your prayers will be heard and your prayers for forgiveness will be heard. So what the temple really stands for is God is listening. He, he, he may not be contained in this house, but he's got his eyes towards this house that you may hear. And through the Lord Jesus, he hears our prayers for forgiveness. I just think for me, it, it, that phrase, in Jesus' name, which is sometimes just a habit and a throwaway line at the end of a prayer, there's a lot of theology behind that. It's saying, Lord, because there's a temple where you promised that you'll pay attention even when I've sinned, mm. please will you listen? And that temple is Jesus. We were thinking last night about what this the, the um, uh, evangelist John. He's particularly keen on showing that Jesus is the fulfillment of the temple and the tabernacle. So um, in chapter one, Jesus came to tabernacle amongst us. In chapter two, he was talking of... The, um, the temple of his body and then you get to chapter four and they're talking he's talking with a Samaritan woman and she's saying oh where do we have to worship is it Gerizim or Jerusalem and he says no no a time is coming when true worshippers will worship the father in the in spirit and truth and he's he's kind of alluding to the fact that actually it's not you're not going to have to go on pilgrimage anymore all of that is going to be superseded because the access point is going to be the new temple me and and i can be accessed wherever people are worshiping in the holy spirit and in line with the truth of the gospel Hmm. so we can always confess our sins in his name and know that he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness not only because he's sacrificed but because of his open ear towards this place thank you so much for listening um we're going to be back Uh, Next time, um, we're looking at um, King Solomon, who built this house. And even though he's the wisest man of all history, a very, very foolish thing that he did. Hope you can join us then. Thank you for listening to Grace Pod. For more information about Grace Church Greenwich, visit www.greenwich.church.